Hi there, everybody. I'm Naomi Mella, and you're listening to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that tells the stories of women with interesting, unusual, and inspiring careers. In the introduction of the first podcast in this series, which featured the lovely and very talented Jamie Chadwick, still available to listen to, by the way, if you haven't already, I said that one of the factors that made me start this podcast was meeting women at parties and events with unusual and quirky careers. Today's guest would certainly fit that bill, as I can imagine that pelvic floor physiotherapist and comedian would definitely elicit a few bemused eyebrow raises at a dinner party. She is Elaine Miller, whose show Gussie Grippers won Weirdest Show of the Fringe at her very first Edinburgh Festival. That's a compliment, by the way, and has been a sellout every year since. Weirdest because the content is all about women's pelvic floors, incontinence, childbirth and sex. Elaine is a physiotherapist by training and also runs a clinical practice treating women with pelvic floor issues, which is how she has also managed to make her comedy show count as continuing professional development for healthcare professionals. Brilliant. I loved talking to Elaine, mainly because she just made me laugh non-stop for an hour. We talked about so much stuff in this interview and it went on for such a long time that editing it has been really hard. Our chat ranged from a discussion about what Elaine is going to call her own podcast, the story she told me about when her son ate a dog poo, and the urgent need to address pelvic floor health in women. She is so perfectly placed to do this as a credible, successful physio, relying on evidence-based medicine, and a hilarious comedian with a sellout award-winning show. Unsurprisingly, this show contains some pretty frank conversations about bodily functions, sex and childbirth, so if any of that isn't for you, then be warned. We'd already been yakking for ages before we actually got into recording the podcast, so I started by asking Elaine about her early career. This was not what was on your radar initially when you started your career, was it? Well, I knew that that you could be a pelvic health physio because we got lectures in continence and how bladders work. And at the times I was a student in the uh, 1990, and at the time there was work done by a woman called Jo Laycock, which was like the first published evidence that pelvic floors responded to exercise from a physio point of view. Um, And I I found it really interesting. But what I wanted to do was sports. So I did that. I did a postgrad in sports stuff and had to travel around the world with young fit men and touch them. Oh, um, what a hardship. It was awful. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I really liked it. Funny that. Every job needs a perk. and but the problem with like sports stuff is it's not it's great if you're single because there's a lot of travel and and it's pretty disruptive in a lifestyle. So once I was married with kids, um, I was, you know, you you just can't do it. So I was working in outpatients, you know, backs and necks, and I did a bit of community stuff, which I also really loved. But having had kids, then that kind of brought continence issues to the fore. <laughs> most most physios that work in pelvic health have either had problems with their own continence or know somebody who has and once you grasp the impact that it has on your life then you're like oh we've got to sort this out for people Um, and it's an enormously satisfying area of work because they get better and you know like physio is all about rehab and getting people back to what they want to do and there's few things that interfere with somebody's lifestyle more than continence problems really does stop you from doing it whatever it is that you want to do when you have to think about your bladder your bowel function then it 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 curtails people's activities in a way that very, very few other conditions do. So, yeah, I landed up just being really interested in it. And also one of our kids wasn't particularly well for a long time. So I was out of clinical practice for a number of years. He's fine now. 
And um, he's also not my favourite, so it's all there. <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> if he ever listens to this, he'd be <laughs> he'd be gutted because I tell him that he's my favourite. But yeah. You know. Oh, bless him. So you have to do, when you're a healthcare practitioner, you have to keep your practice up to date, either through clinical work or through research stuff. Um, And I was worried that I was going to land up losing my my registration because I wasn't working. Um, So I was, you have to do reading and show that you're keeping yourself up up to date. So I started reading about pelvic floors because I couldn't understand why, if we've got really, really good evidence that physio is effective, it's the most effective intervention interventions better than medication or surgery for stress incontinence which is the most common one where you wet yourself a bit if you laugh or cough or sneeze so if this is gold standard evidence and it's in all the the care guidelines that conservative treatment works why is nobody doing it why are women not coming forward and why wasn't I taught about this as an undergrad that it's uh it, it made no sense to me um, so I started reading up about that and I like a little fight and I like something that I can get indignant about. So it's it, it's a big feminist issue, you know, something that affects women primarily. It's easily fixed. It's cheap to fix. And yet we don't address it very well for most women. So I got my knickers in a twist about it and thought, right, <laughs> I'll sort this. Off we go. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, because it was quite a stressful time with, you know, like having an unpredictably poorly um, kid, I had started doing comedy as a bucket list thing. Um, there was a bunch of us were going to be turning 40. We decided that we would um, like set a goal to achieve so my, I said I'd do stand-up um, because years ago, like when I was in my 20s, I had been at a party telling a story about a bad date that I'd been on the night before, and it was pretty dire. Um, nothing criminal, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a great experience. And um, I had been telling the story the next night at a party, and a guy that ran a comedy club tried to persuade me to go and do five minute set on his on his stage, and I was like, "No way! It'll be embarrassing. There's no way I'm going to do that." But because he said that, then for twenty years I'd watched comedy and thought I can do that. <laughs> so I decided that I would enter a, a competition um, for my first gig, um, a newcomers competition, because I thought, "Well, I'm a newcomer. That must be right." not having a clue about how these things work so I didn't understand that newcomers competition was basically for people who were looking for an agent (laughs) maybe hoping to get signed up to do a dvd (laughs) they're like oh no I'm just cannon fodder because they they didn't know me and it's a small community um, on the comedy circuit like no no this is my first gig and I remember them all giving me a funny look like are you mad but I got through the round of um there's a kind of shortage of female comedians in general and there's a shortage of um like I, I think I get away with quite a lot because I'm quite mumsy and I'm quite nice and I'm quite soft-spoken and I'm nice to men and um so you can get a bit of leeway in saying things that are perfectly filthy or really quite like nasty <laughs> I can away with it a little bit so yeah so I kind of got the bug really enjoyed it and then I realized that comedians were talking about things that are abhorrent on stage and if it's funny then you can say anything that you like if it's not funny it's grossly offensive but if you make it funny you can get away with anything 
So when you started, you, you your first comedy routines were not about pelvic floors. No, no, no. It's just straight stand up no. about okay, you know, fine. about observational whatever. Yeah, a lot of stuff about um, life, having kids, because having kids is an, an endless source of entertainment and ridiculous <laughs> situations, especially if you're a bit of a ropey mother like me. That, <laughs> that I'm, I'm not particularly skilled. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm sure that's not true. Well, things like I let my um, toddler eat a dog poo. <laughs> that was that wasn't great. <laughs> and, and yeah, um, there was three. So I had three and four years, three kids in four years, which um, that's a challenge. Is what knocked my pelvic floor. Um, and the so the oldest one was three, and she we were up the woods. I was pretending that I was being a good mum and taking them for you know fresh air and exercise, come and see the seasons and play, play with sticks. And she fell over and really hurt her head. And you don't need you don't need a, a big cut on a head to cause a lot of blood loss. Yeah, so, gosh, they bleed a lot, don't they? Yeah, they're really messy. So I wasn't sure how badly hurt she was, but she was screaming, so she couldn't have been that sore, uh, that badly hurt because she was conscious. Always a good start. <laughs> and I only had one little kind of dried out wet wipe left in my bag, so I'm trying to mop up this. She looked like something out of a horror film with my one solitary wet wipe and the toddler, so he would have been about nearly two, he would have been about 18 months old, was wandering around with a big pine cone, quite happy because he had a pine cone and I was really heavily pregnant with our third one as well. So, <laughs> so it was just a disaster and I was ignoring the toddler because she was covered in, in you know, gore. And it wasn't until he bit into the into the pine cone that we realised that it was in fact a very large and firm dog poo. So, so, so the the girl was then hysterical again because she seemed to me it's in his teeth, mum. Oh my god! Used my last wet wipe. This is horrific. Um, anyway, managed to get him to spit out the turd. <laughs> we were going our way to nursery so um, because I have no sense of class or shame I got there and said to all the mums you'll never guess what's happened I just let him eat a dog toy <laughs> and this mum said to me oh my goodness what did the hospital say <laughs> what? why would you take a child to hospital and admit they <laughs> just let a shite <laughs> no I think I think I'll just keep this to myself thank you so yeah not not a great mum anyway what were we talking about <laughs> we were talking about your first forays into comedy and I, I was saying oh did you talk about public floors then and that was how we got onto that um but I mean that's just much more hilarious um so, but then you was just saying you realized that you could kind of get away with talking about anything on stage yeah there's um Adam Hill, who's um, the Australian comedian that's on. Oh, yeah, the last leg. Love him. Yeah. He says, if it's funny, it's not offensive. And if it's offensive, it's not funny, which I really like because it's so succinct. And and I think that's true, that you can talk about really, really difficult subjects and use humour to circumvent the awkwardness around them. Um, and one of the big barriers for people coming forward for help with their continents is embarrassment that they're just too ashamed. It's a strange, strange thing. There's not very much research looking at why we're so embarrassed about not having body control. 
but there was a little study that they did in Canada where they were talking to people who were terminally ill and saying to them, you know, what's your fear? What's the, the line that you imagine is a step where life is not worth living anymore? And they gave them a number of options, like being in a ventilator, having uncontrollable pain. But the one that they were most worried about that, that was common was not having good bowel and bladder control. People just did not want to disgrace themselves in front of their family which Crikey. is amazing. Yeah, and it, that is amazing. It makes total sense that if, you've, if you're if you very debilitated and then you land up, you know, kicking yourself in front of your loved ones, that's just, it makes you cringe thinking about it. It's funny enough, one of the things that, because um, I'm of an age where lots of my friends are having children and it's one of the things that comes up time and again is one of their fears about childbirth is, is you know, pooing yourself while you're, in labor and it's amazing how many people say oh my god that's you know I don't want to appear in front of my husband or boyfriend or partner or whatever or, or anyone else for that matter actually and that's a time where you have it's very difficult to be dignified in childbirth and it's very very difficult not to have anything <laughs> any sort of bowel action going on when you've got somebody's head squeezing right down to the side of your rectum it is inevitable but uh, it upsets people um and I can't find, I mean, I'm no sociologist, but I can't find any evidence of a society where it is acceptable to not have good bowel and bladder control. Um, it's just something that we need. Uh, the only people that it's okay to not have good um, continence are the very, very young. That it doesn't matter if you're 104, if you are aware of it, you want to have good continence. And even in people that have got dementia and are quite locked in and unaware of things that are going on around them, they know that if they can manage their continence, they are more settled. There's something that, that just disturbs us about it. So, And yet we don't talk about it. So that's why I thought, well, let's use comedy, get people. If you make people laugh, then they talk. And then they share stories with each other. And a lot of it is funny. Like a lot of the situations that people land up in is absolutely... <laughs> like the, the first set that I did was a story that a patient had told me about when she wet herself in the doorstep. And um, she was Glaswegian, so it was funny because everything the woman said was hilarious. <laughs> but... I said to her, can I use that on stage? And that's what I built like the five minutes out of. Um, and the when I did it on stage, four women said to me on that one night, oh, you have me as well, me as well. That's, and I couldn't believe that they would chat about this in a pub. They didn't know that I was a physio. I'd just tell them a story about wetting myself in the doorstep. And they were so... Um, like they connected with them to the point that they wanted to come and speak to me about it. And that just blew my mind because they wouldn't talk to somebody that could help them. They didn't know there was any help available, but it was like solidarity. You know, the dinner ladies will unite. And like you don't need to put up with this. Like physios got up to an 84% cure rate for stress incontinence in six sessions. And yet nobody really talks about that being an option. And certainly I know one of my friends has told me that she's been for pelvic floor physio, not because she had a problem, but because she didn't want to have a problem. And she, you know, she went for routine sessions after she'd had a baby. And actually she had a very untraumatic labor compared to other people I know. But, um, but she, that is, I think is still incredibly rare, even amongst, you know, I would consider, um, 
women of my generation and my peer group to be quite open about talking about those sorts of things amongst their friendship group. And even then, it's something that is just not really discussed. A few of my friends have said to me that they will still be incontinent when they run and uh, that one or two of my friends said it took six months before they could run without having a problem, but they got there eventually. And it's kind of been alluded to, but not nobody has said, oh, I've got a massive issue with this, you know. I'm just trying to think about patients that I've seen. I don't think I've ever had anybody come from a preventative point of view. That's amazing what she did. That's fantastic. Running's a difficult one because runners want to run. Like there's not really anything else that if you said to somebody that gets a lot of um, pleasure from running, so people get kind of like hooked on it and they use it as a crutch for their mental health. They use it to just sort of mull through what's going on in the day and just zone out as well as, you know, for fitness. Um, And there doesn't seem to be an equal replacement for people that get a kick out of running, saying to them, well, why don't you go swimming or cycling instead? They just look at you like you're insane because runners (laughs) just want to run. That's no time to be getting changed. Nothing that takes an hour to travel to or prepare. I'm going to put on my trainers and run. I get that. No, I don't. Um, <laughs> they fall out. Maybe you could stop doing it, but no, no, no. Um, and there's no way around it. There's no compromise. You've just got to work out a way so that they can run because the benefits of it, you've got to balance risk and benefit. And mm-hmm. and it's a good thing that they want to exercise and the mental health benefits are enormous. Um, but every running step you take, there's three times your body weight and impact rattling up your leg into your pelvic floor yikes yeah so that's why some women can manage short distances so they might manage um park run but they couldn't run 12k um because the pelvic floor just gets tired it's just not strong enough for the impact that it's been put through and um some women will still leak for a long time because even if you weigh 10 stones like if you're the right weight for your height that's 30 stones of impact with each step so it doesn't take very long for your muscles to tire and yeah it doesn't mean that you can't run though like it just means that you've got to make sure that your pelvic floor is strong enough to manage the impact and it responds really really quickly to pelvic floor exercises because there's not really a time limit in fixing this stuff you know I'll see women that have got kids that are in their 40s and have been leaking all that time and they still get better gosh it's a long time I've because I read that you'd said that you've had people come and say oh I've been leaking since I had my my baby and that was you know 37 years ago or whatever it was you know they've done some work on that and the average length of time it takes before somebody comes to seek help is seven years seven it's a long time isn't it counting toilets seven years of worrying every time you go past the the um motorway service stations and worrying about going to new places because you don't know where the toilets are and it's just it's a it's a funny thing because it's not going to kill you it's not it's not painful for most people but it's incredibly intrusive um so yeah that's why I thought let's tell people (laughs) so when you had your first um show at Edinburgh I read that you you won weirdest show of the fringe Yeah. yeah that was hilarious there's um yeah there's there's the official um fringe awards and then every now and then people run their own ones that they make up so the weirdest show I thought was a great idea she went through the um brochure there's a lot of shows on in Edinburgh there's about 3,000 shows 
it's a huge event. And um, so she went to go and see all the, the curious things because there's no, um, it's not like Britain's Got Talent. There's no um, like auditions or anything to check quality. <laughs> if you can find a room and you fill out the form, they just let you do it. And I think this is a flawed idea. <laughs> so there are some wild and crazy things that people come up to do. And she thought that that having a show about vaginas was weird, which I find a bit insulting. But <laughs> but I was really flattered because um, it, that because she gave me that wee prize, it got um, a bit of press because of that, and that's why it landed up working because it is odd to have a, a comedy show delivering healthcare, and because I had sort of to justify myself professionally and they were right to question it um but I had to really think about well, what am I doing you know kind of kind of back everything that I'm saying up with evidence because I have to be able to do that so that meant then I had all the references for everything that I was saying and then I could say <laughs> that because it's evidence-based it counts as continuing professional development for healthcare professionals so they can get a certificate for attending and they can have the references and reflective practice questions and use it for their CPD. So it was a really... Which is basically awesome. It meant then it was easy to get an audience because CPD is usually an incredibly boring thing to get. And if you can have it in a pub with your pals <laughs> while having a laugh, what? Why wouldn't you? Yeah. So it was a it was a really good thing to happen in the first year. And also I wasn't convinced that it was gonna work. I was fairly confident that it would that it would work, but I wasn't sure why anybody would come to a lunchtime show in a basement about vaginas when there was so many other things going on in the fridge yeah. that, you know, as an unknown person it's quite hard to get an audience. And the average um audience in the fringe is somebody who's telling me this year is eight. Blimey. There's so many shows. Lots and lots of shows don't get an audience at all. And it's really hard work to convince people to spend the hour of their life seeing you and not any of the other dozen shows that are on their their doorstep. I didn't have a problem getting people to come. And that's why I I thought actually this will work because I had messaged around all of the um, playgroups and mother and toddler groups and the soft plays to tell them the show was on and they came in droves. The room sat 60 people and I had, like at weekends, there was 120 people in the room, which is unusual for a first year for an unknown person. That's really unusual. Um, so you've done, have you done the festival every year since? No, every then? year because, um, well, partly because the, the kid interfered a couple of times. I did a short run one time because I, I couldn't organise in time. You need to have everything booked by about February, March, otherwise oh, wow. you're going to get a venue. Um, and then one year I was in Australia, darling. Um, oh. So we, because I got that uh, that um, prize, the weirdest show the fringe, and it got a bit of press, and then I was validating what I was doing with the evidence my professional peers and started to get interested in it as a as a way of communicating healthcare healthcare information. So I was invited out to Australia to speak to a conference about using humour as a health promotion tool, which is in itself just hilarious. So that was in the September. Um, that was a great year because I was in Australia and Canada and New Zealand with it, and I just thought, oh, I'm in the gravy train. This is. <laughs> So it's been really interesting because it's just a series of fart jokes and, you know, having a brass neck. But I think 
I think if I can show that there's an effect that it'll make people see their GP, I think that would be really useful. So how do you go about um, updating your show? You know, if you, or you obviously wrote the original show, which was wildly successful and has done really good things. But we, you know, most comedians would write a new stand-up show every couple of years to take to Edinburgh or wherever it's going to be. How are you going to go about keeping it fresh, I guess? Well, it's taken me this long, I think, to turn it into being a decent bit of work because the first year that I did it, I was deeply concerned about being unprofessional so the middle section of it was just a lecture about and then this paper says and then this researcher discovered this and that really didn't work um, like it was funny enough except the, this middle section but because then I got more experience with doing comedy then I was able to you know edit it so it, it now I think it is well it got five stars so it's obviously funny enough um and then there's all the other stuff like men's health um about teenage girls about puberty menopause pregnancy all of these specific things about talking about sex ed with your kids oh yeah that's a big one isn't it how do you talk to your kids about puberty and even potty training like we don't teach people at school what normal peeing and pooing is then you've got adults that have got bladder dysfunctions, but they think that what they're doing is normal. They think it's normal to go for a pee every hour and a half. So they're potty training little people with a, a, a dysfunction themselves that they don't know about. So that's a lot of the time how these things land up, you know, being set up. That um, the, the common one is just in case peeing. So if your mum always said to you before you went in a car journey, go for a pee just in case that's what you do every time you go anywhere you go for a pee just in case but if you don't let your bladder fill properly before you go for a pee and you always empty it before it's completely full you'll end up shrinking the capacity of your bladder so then you have to go for a pee all the time and I had a lady that was getting disability living allowance because she peed every 20 minutes why does nobody tell you these things in life exactly should be able to last four hours between each pee. It's a long time, and that's normal. Um, so if you can't do that, it means that there's something not quite right. But if you don't know what you should be able to reasonably expect from your genitals, then you know how can you possibly be expected to recognise it's a problem? Sex ed in school is grossly inadequate because um, we teach them about you know about sex but not about their own body not about pleasure we don't get kids leaving the school understanding the their their own anatomy is normal um, we're letting the kids be educated by porn and I think that that's an abomination that we should be telling them normal peeing normal pooing normal sexual function basic biological stuff information about your body if everybody had an understanding of that then a lot of these problems would be resolved really really quickly one of my pet hates is um is not using the correct terms i think teaching kids actually what a vulva is and yeah. what a vagina is 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 just really important and it's it it really frustrates me when people use like funny what they think of funny names yeah. instead of just calling it what it is yeah yeah there's um in scotland now if you the nursery schools are teaching children correct terminology 
because they know that it helps um, flag up if the child's got a problem and that somebody's been inappropriate with them. If they're able to use the right words, then it improves that being picked up. Oh, right. Which is pretty depressing, but also good that they know that so that because if children use euphemisms and they're saying something about you know, somebody picking their flower or whatever, then mm. it's not always the case that people will um, will understand what the child's trying to communicate. But if they say somebody's touched my vulva, then you, you, you yeah, that's you damn well know about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The names that people use for their bits is just brilliant. <laughs> I don't, I don't mind slang terms. I, I mind people not knowing the difference, like the anatomical difference between the vulva and their vagina. And women use vagina all the time when, the, and the magazines and a lot of even the books that are there to educate about pregnancy and childbirth talk about vaginas when they mean vulva and. That's a. It frustrates me because it's reducing women and our genitals to just a, a socket. That you know, there's an awful lot of fun in a vulva, and um, vaginas aren't that much fun. There's not an awful lot of sensation up there. Um, the the yeah the bit you need to pay attention to is is your vulva. That's my kids get fed up hearing this. They. In fact, the other day, <laughs> I had to go into the school and um, I was saying to my 10-year-old, I'll walk down to school with you today because I need to nip into the office. And he said, no way, you'll just get to the school gate and start shouting, vagina! <laughs> and he disappeared in a flash. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I might. It's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you're obviously continuing with your clinical practice as well. Yeah, are you, yeah. What would your sort of average week look like? Are you are you mostly doing physio, or do you do comedy week to week in a normal month, or how do you how does your life kind of fit together at the moment? <laughs> um, badly, um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a bit it's a bit hit and miss really. I try to work two days a week, so I'm just part time, um, and then I'll have writing stuff to do. I do a bit of um, writing for other people. I'm trying to write a book and I try and do the the gigs. Um, it's getting a bit more structured now after Fringe because at least now I've got an idea of what I want to do. Before before then it was just it was just a hobby. Whereas now I'm thinking, no, I'm gonna spend a year and see what happens. I'll um build a podcast, I'll try and organise proper gigs, try and get some data and see if I can use it to burst the taboo that surrounds this stuff. Um, so I'm aiming to do one show a month because I don't forget it um, and stick with doing the clinical stuff because I really like it. You know, I really do enjoy it. Um, and then the writing stuff fit in round about it. I'm trying to do the pelvic roar stuff. There's a bit of politics. I'm going into Holyrood to enter the Scottish Parliament to see a debate that's going on. And I'm trying to persuade them or try to find a mechanism to put pelvic health information into the baby box scheme that we have here. Oh, yes. Do you want to just tell people what that is for those people who don't know what the baby box scheme is in Scotland? It's an amazing thing. I think it started in Finland where every baby that was born got a present from the government, which was a cardboard box that's got a little mattress in it. So the baby sleeps in the box and it would be filled with baby grows and things that you need for um, when you have a newborn in the house. 
And that goes to every single person in the entire country that has a baby, doesn't it? So you opt into it. And it, there's a lot of like the financial investment that you would have to make to replicate the baby box is really significant. Um, and it includes everything like from bath thermometers and um like basic bits of first aid stuff and really cute little clothes that are really good quality and all the muslin squares and blankets and everything that you would possibly need. Um, and there was a it was a bit of a political hot potato because some of the political parties thought it was an incredible waste of money and it went through, Scotland's got quite a, a socialist approach, so it went through as being a, a societal equaliser. It's just finished a year since the camp, um, since the project was launched, and the uptake of the baby box is eighty five percent, which is huge. So there's some areas in Edinburgh that the uptake is ninety eight percent, and so it really works because all the all the Scottish babies have a uniform; <laughs> <laughs> they all look exactly the same, which is very equalising. Yeah, because if the yummy mummies are all wearing, if their babies are all wearing the the council clothing, then everybody's babies are wearing it. So it does actually really work. And what I hear from um, women that have got, you know, like that have got a disposable income that they would be able to afford these items for their newborn anyway, is they kind of swithered about getting it, but then they decided to get it to see what was in it and really, really liked it. And that's why it works because it it is completely accessible. And I think it's been a huge success. All the criticism with it is there isn't any information in it. There's a poem from the Scottish Macher about welcoming new life, which is lovely. But you get your baby box when you're about 36 weeks pregnant, I think. And every because of human behaviour, every um, woman that gets that box is going to pick through every single piece of um, equipment and kit that's in there and pay proper attention to it. So I'm putting together a, um, like a funny booklet about pelvic health and we're going to submit it and see if we can do a trial in about a thousand of them um, then women have got something concrete that they can actually use and remind them that this is important because we want people to be getting back running and not wetting themselves and and you know not if you wet yourself in the first six weeks after having had a baby it doubles your risk of postnatal depression crikey which is a whole other topic in its own right huge well, actually, for very, very little investment, you could have a big influence on, even if you are wetting yourself, if you know that there's help available, then that reduces the mental health um, load that you're having to manage. Because having a newborn, you know, I haven't done it myself a, a few times. It's rubbish. It's really, <laughs> really, really hard work. <laughs> Babies are not my favourite thing at all. They're 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 exhausting and they don't even smile at you you get no feedback from them (laughs) six weeks to bother to show any gratitude or enjoyment in life they're rubbish (laughs) but they turn into brilliant little people well maybe some of them maybe maybe. (laughs) some of them maybe not let's face it right i think but some of the others oh dear you'd be disappointed (laughs) (laughs) oh dear So Elaine and I met in inverted commas through a podcast support group. Yes, they really exist. And there are loads of people out there to help you if you fancy starting one yourself. Seriously, if I can do it, anybody can. Elaine's next project is to turn her comedy show into a podcast with the underlying health messages we've been discussing so far. I asked her what made her want to start a podcast. 
like, well, I think about fannies all the time because <laughs> <laughs> it's work. Absolutely. <laughs> Like I'm always ferreting away little bits of um, like research and things, and I'm quite good at taking academic stuff and making it accessible. Um, and I'm I've got a lot of really interesting people that I've met. So I was thinking, like, who would you have on? And it's fine to have academics, but often they're a bit dry and it's not that engaging. But there's some really interesting folks. There's a woman that runs an adult shop in London for women by women, and it's absolutely brilliant. She's hilarious and endlessly interesting and um, there's a woman that runs a menopause cafe and there's a guy that I know that recruits um, the physios for the Olympic Games and the Commonwealth Games so I was saying to him about um, like the difference between strengthening a pelvic floor compared to strengthening any other muscle and and why is there a difference and I was like actually you could everybody's interested in sex and everybody's in interesting people so I've got a list of about 60 people that I'm like oh they'd be good, they'd be good. so I think I should, I'm thinking that I'd record like a dozen episodes and then start to put them out and I can work in the next lot. Is it going to be called Gusset Griffiths? Well I'm not sure because the other thing that I'm involved with is a thing called Pelvic Roar me and a, a couple of physio pals basically got annoyed because our governing body with the women's health side of things, they've got a really bad case of death by committee. Um, they do really, really good work, but they are incredibly slow and they don't engage social media at all. And I upset them because um, they didn't think that it was professional to be doing um, comedy about pelvic floors at all. Um, and so we work very hard at being friends. <laughs> it's very hard. Um but the three of us got fed up of waiting. So we set up um, Pelvic Roar as a sort of like platform to try and curate the, there's some really, really good charities and some really good projects and petitions, but people can't find them. The thing I hear from women all the time is they can't find decent evidence-based information online. So just put it all together in a one-stop shop and then you can use it to promote people that aren't physios but have got good evidence or critical thinking because there's some really really good um like fitness professionals pilates instructors yoga teachers that are dead on the ball but they just get lost in amongst the idiots who've got great marketing so we'll have to wait and see on that one but i'll definitely keep you posted when elaine's podcast is up and running i then asked her what her aims were for her podcast with regard to her comedy I mean, ultimately, do you know Scummy Mummies, the two comedians? So they sell out their shows all the time through their podcast. So they um, say, we're coming to Huddersfield and we'll be near you. And their show totally sells out within minutes. So it's definitely a good, there's a few comedians that do that. And they're kind of dropping using agents now because they're able to create their own, find their own opportunities and just sort it out for themselves with their own podcast following. Um, and I'd like to use the show um, to do a bit of research because we don't know very much about most of the stats are taken from women that go to clinic. And that's pretty well, not limited. Um, urban white middle class women are overrepresented in clinic. Um, so we know very, very little about women that live in geographically remote areas, culturally diverse areas and areas that are um, economically deprived. So. I was thinking if we take the show to them and subsidise tickets so that people will be able to come, 
and then survey them. There's a really short form, um, it's only four questions about what women's leaking is and then follow them up six months later to see if they've seen their GP. And only about 25% of women ever go to their GP about their incontinence. So if more than 25% of them have gone, you can see that it's an effective intervention. And also data on these women who are totally missing because the stats is one in three women wet themselves, but it's higher than that. Like if you, if you go to a school gate and speak to the mums that are there, do you go on a trampoline? The majority of them would just laugh at you. The incidence is really, really high. Um, so I want to show that and think that, that humour is a good vehicle for doing that because it's so embarrassing for people. So that's the reason for doing a podcast because I know interest in people, but I can also publicise effectively like I mean it's not a tour because it would just be weekends in random places um but to try and recruit people to come and and see the show and fill out the form and so that they'd be in it so if people are interested in your work where is the best place that they can come and see you or find you or well give us some give us some plugs um if they use twitter I'm at Gussie Grips G-U-S-S-I-E grips g-r-i-p-s um and if you follow me on twitter then when i tweet i'm trying to use it as a reminder to get people to do their exercises so when i tweet you do your twinkle ha 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 you twitch your twinkle um and the <laughs> website the website's called gusset grippers but there's not much on there i need to get more disciplined about actually using it and putting some stuff up that's the idea of doing the podcast um and as far as shows and things go on, I'm, I'm all over the place at the moment. I'm going to Ireland in November and I've got a couple coming up in Edinburgh. I'm supposed to be going down to Southampton and London. I'm in London on the 1st of December at Madame Bia Shara's and that's a great place. It's um, run by a woman called Kate Copstick, who's the chief comedy critic of the Scotsman and she runs a charity um, supporting women in Kenya and she has pop-up comedy shows at the the back and I'm on that night with Scott Capuro which is so exciting because like, he's an actual comedian. Um, You're an actual comedian too, don't do yourself down. So and um, because I'm wanting to do this research, if anybody wants me to come near them, just send me a tweet or just drop me an email um, because I'm looking for places to go and I'll go anywhere over the next year to try and get some stats that'd be great so pubs village halls yeah. schools all fair game center somebody's front room i don't care anywhere at all <laughs> excellent well there's a challenge to people i asked elaine finally if she'd like to plug anything else but fell right into that trap yeah, nothing else there's a joke in that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i suppose well there's a joke in everything <laughs> when i'm on my soapbox then yeah if you if you leak if you can't control your pee, your poo, or your farts, or if your orgasms are crap, you don't need to put up with it. Go and speak to your GP or go in. A lot of um, physio departments have got self-referral systems, so if you just phone them up and say you want to see the pelvic health physio, and um, pelvic health physios are universally lovely people, really, really nice, caring folk. They're great to spend time with, so please don't put up with it because most most cases can be managed, if not cured. Um, even when people have got other um, conditions that affect things, then there's always an improvement to be made. So, yes, please don't put up with it because it's much. And also, I did mention there, it makes your orgasms better. Really, it's worth it. <laughs> Everyone, should, that's the take-home message from today. <laughs> Improve your orgasm with Elaine. <laughs> Maybe you should call your podcast that. 
And on that note, it's probably time to close the show. Thanks so much to Elaine Legend. Elaine, if you're listening, I was in Edinburgh last weekend and told a group of women that you were on the podcast this week and they'd all heard of you. So your fame is spreading. Check out Elaine's shows on her website, gussetgrippers.co.uk. And if you live anywhere where she's playing, do check her out. That's all for this time and thanks for listening. This has been Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave us a nice review on your favourite podcast site as it helps others to find us. More importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing the Ceiling and we'll hopefully see you next time.